to what was the normal religious practice of the people. So much so that in Mark 7 verse 13 we read there that Jesus said, particularly to the religious leaders, he said, you break the law of God in order to protect your man-made traditions. Or another translation says you nullify God's word by your tradition that you have handed down. The message translation uh, really puts it bluntly and uh, it reads along the lines that you completely scratch out the things of God so that you won't be made uncomfortable by the things of the Lord. That was just the way that they did it. So generally people following these things were also guilty of this stepping aside from God's law. But primarily it was the religious leaders that held the responsibility. For they were the ones who for centuries had been adding to the law of God. They'd been adding all of these precepts, all of these additional laws. I just looked up as I was going through this for the last time and lost page two, um, how today even, I didn't realise there's still a Sanhedrin in the Orthodox Jewish system uh, that still dictates what is right and what is wrong. Anyway, I came across a site that listed 39 particular laws to do with the Sabbath. And as I said, these are not comprehensive. And I won't go through them all, but just a couple to let you see why Jesus got so indignant with the people. You can't shear your sheep on the Sabbath because that would be working. But added to that, in what is what they say is the spirit of the Sabbath, if you brush your hair, you're not to use a comb or a hard brush, for in doing so, you will take out some hair, and that is considered shearing. <laughs> you have to use a soft brush. You obviously can't go out and hunt for food. If you swap the mosquito, you've broken the Sabbath. That's hunting. Look, I can go through so many of them. And the thing is, those things that would have really incensed Jesus are still being practiced by the Orthodox today. So the binding of people by all of these additional laws, which in effect make the law of God totally irrelevant. The law was given to free people, not to bind them in such ways. I said to Gavin earlier, he would not be happy as an Orthodox Jew. Not only could he not go out and grind his wheat and his, his um, other grains, he wouldn't be allowed to grind his coffee. <laughs> <laughs> The Jews, or the religious leaders, would have been totally happy with this beatitude, so long as it stopped at blessed are the pure. They would have been okay, because they, you know, they, were, they were just reaping in high distinctions on purity of the flesh, on purity of ceremony, on outward purity. But as far as inner purity, the real meaning of purity, they failed miserably. Jesus said on one occasion, you remember, you whitewash tombs. You look alright on the outside, but inside you're full of every unclean thing. Dead men's bones. So he really got stuck into them. Now to be pure, 
in body is a good thing, obviously. But to be pure in heart is the best because it takes care of the external things. If we're pure in the heart, then the other things will just fall in place. For the Israelites of Jesus' time, the heart carried a greater meaning than just the organ that pumped in their chest. They understood that it was far more even than affection and emotion. They believed that the seat of understanding, of discernment, of insight, conscious, conscience and morality dwelt in their heart. If we are pure in heart, we'll be pure in everything and everywhere. To be pure in heart means to be pure from the inside out. Now the Greek word for pure, here in Matthew 5.8, is katharos. And while it does mean to be clean, blameless, unstained from guilt, katharos has a slightly different feel or nuance than the Greek word for purity, which is agnos. The word katharos is used to describe the clean water used in the law's rites of purification. It's used to use the clean shroud that Jesus was wrapped in, in the tomb. It's used to refer to the clean state of those who have just bathed. And it's used on the occasion when Jesus cleanses the leper, when he heals the leper. So it carries this sense of something more than just moral purity. It also carries the meaning of simplicity and freedom from double-mindedness. Being pure in heart involves having a singleness of heart toward God. A pure heart has no hypocrisy, it's uncompromising, sorry, it has no uncompromising desire, or compromising desire. Mm -hmm. It is uncompromising in desire to please God. It is one focused. It's much more than an external purity of behaviour. It's an internal purity of soul. Now other translations reveal this a little bit better for us, providing us with a richer meaning. For example, in the message, Peterson puts it this way. He says, you're blessed when you get your inside world, your mind and your heart, pure bright. Then you can see God in the outside. The psalmist in Psalm 86 verse 11 says, Teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. The Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard defines purity of heart as meaning to will one thing. The pure in heart, he says, are the same on the inside as they are on the outside. I love this quote from Bob Gass. You know Bob Gass from Fresh on the Radio? Weirdest voice. Anyway, Bob Gass. He says, our word pure from the Greek means to clean out. Much like a laxative. <laughs> he says that may seem funny, but it's true. Jesus is saying, if you've heard too much and seen too much, give your heart a laxative. Don't carry around what God wants discarded. Get rid of every weight and 
the sin which so easily ensnares us. What God wants to show you is worth cleaning up to see. The Christian writer and teacher Ken Hughes illustrates this idea of a divided heart as against an undivided heart, single-mindedness as against double-mindedness in his book Sermon on the Mount, The Message of the Kingdom. He says this, he says, negatively, we can imagine this idea, that is a divided heart, we can imagine this idea from everyday life. If we reflect on those people who, having been introduced to us, keep talking and smiling while at the same time looking behind and around us. We've all had that speak, haven't we? You're talking to them and you're almost following them, their, their eyes around. They really are not interested in us. They only see us objects as a means to an end. But he makes this point. In the God-man relationship, this kind of behaviour is scandalous. It's wicked. A pure heart is truly an undivided heart. So we could read this back the attitude this way. We could say, blessed are those who have an undivided heart, a heart unmixed in its devotion and motivation. The Passion Translation bears this out, as far as the inner blessing of this goes. It says there, what bliss you experience when your heart is pure. For then, your eyes will be open to see more and more of glory. Bob Gass also says, when we experience God's forgiveness and cleansing, our eyes are open to see Him in all of our circumstances, in ways that we never saw Him before. It's with these richer meanings that Jesus' disciples and the crowd that gathered would have understood what he was saying when he referred to being pure in heart or having an undivided heart. They would have been very familiar with many Old Testament um, verses and experiences that referred to this singleness of heart, this undivided heart, this united heart. The psalm that I quoted earlier in Psalm 8611, that was from the NIV. The Orthodox Jewish Bible puts it this way. Teach me thy derrick, Hashem. I will walk in thy emis. Yachad, make undivided, levavi, my heart, to fear thy shame. I will walk in your ways, make undivided, my heart, to fear you. And the complete Jewish Bible puts it this way. Adonai, teach me your ways so that I can live by your truth. Make me single-hearted so that I can fear your name. So this sense of purity of heart carries this thought of an undivided, single heart focused purely on God. It is to these, these who have this undivided God, the blessing comes, for they shall see God. Now clearly, no one at the time would have understood Jesus literally, that they're going to see God. They knew, didn't they, that God himself had said to their great patriarch Moses in Exodus 33.20, when he had asked to see God, God said to him, no man can see me and live. I love this experience of a 4th century BC rabbi, Rabbi Akiva. 
One of the greatest sages of Israel, Rabbi Akiva in the 4th century BC, was once travelling through the streets of Rome. He walked into the marketplace and was recognised by a Roman merchant who was peddling various graven images. The patron, obviously proud of his wares, asked the venerable sage if he could see the rabbi's gods. Undaunted, the rabbi brought the fellow out of his stall and into the street, beckoning him to lie down on the ground and to gaze at the sun. The merchant explained, exclaimed, no one can look at the sun and not get damaged. Rabbi Akiva responded, if you can't even see one of our God's messengers, how do you expect to behold our God himself? It's a great little example. The God of Israel was the invisible God whom no one had or could see. So then, in what sense is the blessing that the pure in heart will see God? Well, without getting too much into this, but remember the other Sunday we, we learned that Jesus' native language was Aramaic. Well, the word used there to see has both present and future tense. They see now, physically, as you see this bit of paper, now, or you will see in the future, the bit of paper in the office. And the word we've translated from that in our Bible, from the Greek text, carries a metaphorical meaning. And it is to see with the mind, to spiritually see, to perceive with an inward spiritual perception, to experience something is to see something. Now we could illustrate that by looking at John 8 verse 51, where Jesus says, Truly I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. Obviously, he's referring to experience, death. Those who are pure in heart, having an undivided heart, live a life geared toward a single purpose, and that purpose has God at its core. These are the ones who are blessed to see God, because they see the movement of God and the purposes of God in every purpose in experiences. They see God everywhere. They see, that is, they perceive and experience and understand that the kingdom of God is all about them. It's not in some far-off distant locality in the future. It's in the here and the now. And they see God in the working out of that kingdom. St. Augustine I think we have a clue for something else. In his book, The City of God, towards the end of the book, um, he's actually writing about, he's, he's sort of hypothesising what might what be like to see God in heaven. Will we see him literally? Will we see him face to face? Will we see him? Or blah, 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 blah. But I really believe what he says has a great application for today in the here and now. He says this, he says, says, perhaps God will be known to us and visible to us in the sense that he will be spiritually perceived by each of us in each one of us. He will be perceived in one another. 
he will be perceived by each in himself. Very much like um, Craig was saying the other Sunday, that as we look at one another, we can see Jesus. If our focus is in God, we'll see more than just the individual. We'll see Jesus in that person. Mother Teresa said that, that the people she looked at in the street, she yeah. saw Jesus. Beautiful, isn't it? Yeah. It goes on to say, he, he will be seen in the whole of creation. He will be seen in everybody by means of bodies. Wherever the gaze of the spiritual body are directed, with their penetrating gaze. So I love that, that he's saying that we see God in one another. Gavin, in your body, I see God. It's, it's sort of, Dale, Barbara, Jennifer, you know, if we look, if we look through the, the, the lenses of faith and spiritual vision, we'll see more than just the flesh and blood. We'll see God. When our hearts are set on Jesus, we won't be able to keep ourselves from being his arms and his legs in the world. We will be wanting to share the good news of the gospel. We'll gladly be his hands and feet. And then this in turn will set our hearts on fire. This will be the blessing that we'll receive. It's as we live out the example of Jesus and serve other people, we see God. We'll see God's love in action, and in this, we will be blessed as our hearts are stirred to draw closer to God. So just as we read in that passion, what bliss you experience when your heart is pure. For then your eyes will be open to see more and more of God. More and more of God. This is seen reality as reality truly is, because this is the reality of God. When we have one purpose, then we have one heart. We have an undivided heart. But the, the reality, we know this too, is that we live in a fallen world. As the Apostle John warns us, but also assures us, in 1 John 2, 15-17, don't set your affections of your heart on this world or in loving the things of the world. The love of the Father and the love of the world are incompatible. For all that the world can offer us, the gratification of our flesh, the allurement of the things of the world, the obsession with status and importance, none of these things come from the Father but from the world. This world and its desires are in the process of passing away. But those who love to do the will of God live forever. Satan knows that he can't have our heart. As born-again believers in Jesus Christ, we have given our heart to God. However, he's more than happy to nibble away at bits of it. He knows but if he can create in us a divided heart, it will destroy our spiritual and our natural life. It will weaken and erode our relationship with God, with Jesus, with one another, if our heart is divided. That's why in 1 Peter, we're told that he roams around incessantly like a roaring lion looking for its prey to devour. 
He tries every possibility that he can to nibble away at our heart and get us to divide our devotion in heart. I love what Joyce Meyer says when she reminds us that worry and reasoning are two of Satan's most successful tools. He'll get us started off with a negative thought, then sit back and watch us finish ourselves off. Isn't that so true? You know, he'll cast the thought, the doubt, the division. Once he's done that, he's done his job, he'll just watch the unfolding, the unraveling of that. But I love the solution that we're given in, in the way that Peterson gives us this in James 4, 7 to 10 in the message. He says, let God work his will in you. This is James. Yell a loud no to the devil and watch him make himself scarce. Say a quiet yes to God and he'll be there in no time. Quit dabbling in sin. Purify your inner life. Quit playing the field. Hit bottom and cry your eyes out. The fun and the games are over. Get serious, really serious. Get down on your knees before the Master. It's the only way you'll get on your feet. Friends, if this is our, if this is our struggle, if we know that we battle with a divided heart, then let's resolve today to take courage from the words of the Apostle Paul. Philippians 3, 12 to 14. Now, the great man Paul, he, he confesses, he says, I admit that I haven't yet acquired the absolute fullness that I'm pursuing. But I run with passion into his abundance so that I may reach the purpose for which Christ Jesus may hold of me to make me his own. I don't depend on my own strength to accomplish this. However, I do have one compelling focus. I forget all the past as I fasten my heart to the future instead. One compelling focus fastening his heart to the future rather than the past. I run straight for the divine invitation of reaching the heavenly goal and gaining the victory prize through the anointing of Jesus. One focus, one heart. The reality in the life that we live now will present us with many, many opportunities in our lifetime to be pulled in this direction and that direction, in a whole stack of directions that will take us off our one focus. The world around us sets our heart to be distracted. It sets our heart to be disloyal. We only have to walk outside and there'll be something that will set us away. But God created our hearts for one thing and one thing only, for Him, for Him alone. It's up, to, it's up to us to decide who our loyalty is to be for and to guard our heart against it being divided. If it's our desire to see even more and more of God, then let's take up as our own the prayer of Paul the Apostle in Ephesians 1, 18 to 19. I'll tweak this to make it more personal. And I think it's worth you know, having this somewhere in front of us. 
Open the eyes of our heart and let the light of your truth flood in. Shine your light on the hope you are calling us to embrace. Reveal to us the glorious riches you are preparing as our inheritance. Let us see the full extent of your power that is at work in those of us who believe and may it be done according to your might and power. You know, in so many ways the Beatitude is almost summed up here. Let our eyes of our heart be united, pure, undivided in your light. And the blessing that will come from this is that we will see what you are doing for us. As we fix our hearts and our eyes on Jesus, serving him with an undivided heart, we will be blessed to see the spiritual reality, and I think this is amazing, that among so many other things, and listen closely because this is the reality, the now, the present, as the writer of the Hebrews bears out. Now, we have already come to God in a totally different realm, the Zion realm. For we have entered the city of the living God. It's not down there somewhere. We have entered the city of the living God, which is the new Jerusalem in heaven. Doesn't Paul say in Ephesians that God has us already seated in heavenly places? It's a done thing. We have joined the festal gathering of myriads of angels in their joyous celebration. And as members of the church of the firstborn, all our names have been legally registered as citizens in heaven. And we have come before God who judges all and who lives among the spirits of righteous men, men and women who have been made perfect in his eyes. And we have come to Jesus. It's our reality now. We already have these things. Can you see it? That's right. Father God, we pray that you would teach us your ways. May we rely on your faithfulness. Give each and every one of us an undivided heart that is focused solely upon you, upon your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the unity that you have with the Holy Spirit and all that you have done for us. May that be our focus in life, that we may truly love you and fear you. Reveal to us today the things that are competing for first place in our life now. Help us to truly put you first, Jesus, above all else, so that we may truly see. Amen. Amen.